the cool, mellow sound of the Brazilian beat. It conjures images of sipping a caipirinha on the beach at Ipanema. The Holloway Road? Not so much. But my guest this week hails from that part of North London, and Paul Heaney is very much Mr. Bossa Nova. Paul shares stories of how he got into the TV business, what he's up to now, and some interesting neighbours in the Palais and Cannes. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the pod. Hi, Danny. Thank you very much. My question to you is this. Let's say you did a deal with the devil for some kind of reward. And uh, it could be anything. You know, it could be the amazing success that you've had so far in, uh, in the business. And the time comes for the devil to collect your soul. From all the buyers that you know, who would you pick to negotiate on your behalf to buy your soul back? So, yeah, what the toughest buyers out there? That's a good one. I think we have to look at Australia. They're the, um, they're the ones that you just have the, the biggest arm wrestle of all time with. So I would say it's got to be someone at, uh, you know, a Channel 7 or a Channel 9 because you do a deal with them, but you sort of feel like you've, you've, um, a piece of you has gone missing at the same time. You know, you've left a little bit of yourself there, which, you know, you just have to do. So I'd say, uh, I'd say there, but if anyone's ever done a deal in Israel... That takes about, from my memory, about 500 emails, which, you know, and life can sometimes be too short for that. But I think things have moved on from those days when I was doing deals with Israel in the late 90s, possibly. Well, like me, you started your career in the advertising world. I think it's a good way of um, having a grounding in the business. What was your start? The Right Honourable Joel Denton, actually, and I started working together, if anyone remembers his name. I mean, I remember him when he had loads of hair. So in both of our cases, that's a long time ago. But in his case, it's even longer. Sorry for laughing at my own jokes, by the way. It's just a habit. Granada Television, selling TV airtime, the Ministry of Airtime, we used to call it. And in a way, I had so much training. And then at, at IRS, oh my God, where my boss threw my colleague's case out the window when he wasn't out on enough calls. And this is on the Edgeware Road on the first floor, just threw his case out the window and said, you should be out. I can't see that happening now as much. But um, yeah, so airtime sales, I used to look longingly at this business. And I remember um, Joel, when he got into it, it took me 10 10 years of trying to get into um, distribution. And I used to look, I used to pick up one of those uh, MIP or MIPCOM guides and just almost smell the pages and look at all the uh, double barrel surnames of all the salespeople, which it was in those days. And uh, I think, God, I'd love to do this. This would be this would be my dream job because you're actually selling something. Whereas when you're in airtime sales, it is all about the relationship without a doubt. Um, but there's something more, there's got, it's got more longevity. And as you know, Danny, you know, there was such a sort of a turnover of people coming in to see you all the time you know whatever publication or um so i i felt this felt it had roots so it took me 10 years of hilariously failed interviews and um and just missed opportunities so when i eventually got that opportunity my god did i take it but you know it didn't stop me from getting made redundant quite a few times in, in quite a short number of years there's there's one story that keeps sticking in my head is if only back in 94 oh my god i've given the date away now people are going to really connect it now but 
I went for an interview at a job at BBC Worldwide, as it was called then, and it was um, Alison Homewood, and went for the interview in uh, White City. And um, it went so well. It was territory manager in France. And at the time, I could speak a bit of French, unbelievably. And anyone who's heard me now won't believe that. Got through the first interview and they said, right, the next interview is going to be in Paris, but you've got to figure it all out yourself. And I made such a balls up of getting to the interview. Also, it was a big old strike, which I didn't know about pre-internet days getting there. And it was one of the hottest days ever in Paris. I was in a really lovely suit. By the time I got to the interview, I was 45 minutes late and I had to run across several streets because the, the metro was down for various reasons. It was just carnage. There's no other way of putting it. I was sweating like a racehorse and I got to the interview. And apparently four years later, the reason I'm saying this story, my very first trip, Alison Homewood came up to me and said, oh, you finally got into the business. We still talk about that interview now. The job was on a plate for you. All you had to do was turn up because we just wanted you for that, for that job. You, you would have fitted in brilliantly. I turned up, I couldn't speak. And I've never, I, I don't think I've perspired as much since. That's, that's arguable. But anyway, I made such a ruin of it. It was a very long journey home and wasn't successful. But these things all happen for a reason. So how did you make that move? I got a very lucky break. So just, uh, yeah, I got a very lucky break from Helen Grattan at Explore International, as it was called there. Uh, I'll always be thankful for her giving me the chance from to sell for the very first time directly straight into Australia. I was, after six or seven weeks, I was out in Australia meeting the buyers who completely roasted me. I remember pitching them a show. I actually remember one meeting at Channel 7, the buyer properly fell asleep. I mean, not just a doze, he was asleep. Another one, another pitch on the same meeting, the guy said, do you hear that sound? I said, no. He said, that's the sound of the tyres going down on your pitch. I said, oh, OK. Uh, and uh, so, so the Aussies just roasted me. And I suppose they've done that ever since. And I've been on Australian business trips. I think, um, uh, yeah, it was something like something ridiculous, like since 2006, I did one every year. And then um, I got a very then lucky break to go over to, well, lucky break in inverted commas, to go over to Southern Star, as it was then. And I was hired by a person who got fired before I joined, which is never a good sign. And then um, Kathy Payne became my boss, ultimately. And as she always delights in telling people, she fired me after a year, which um, I've got the scars to prove. But <clears throat> we do laugh about it a lot. And Kathy has been a really good friend to me and to the business. She's been good along with Mark Lawrence at um, helping me find people. And sometimes uh, I'll hire them and then they'll rehire them afterwards. But no, that is that is meant to be a joke, but it did actually happen. But no, they've been great. Actually, Tatiana Kostovsi, who is fantastic, who's joined us recently, is courtesy of the Mark Lawrence Kathy Payne Training Academy. And she's amazing. She's doing a great job. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Kathy... Um, Kathy fired me in 2000 or something. I don't know what year it was. And then four years later, tried to hire me. And um, I did see the funny side. So did Kathy. And her words were, things change, but in an Aussie accent. And uh, that, yeah, that was good, actually. So, you know, I've, um, I've been lucky because the, the biggest lucky break of all was I just busted my arm in about 16 places playing football. I had screws all over my left wrist. And Glenn Salzman interviewed me for the job at Cineflix. 
And I had to get that job. I had nothing lined up. I'd just been made redundant for the second or third time. This was due to a channel closure. Seriously, I got made redundant so many times. My friends would say, as I was joining a new job, they would say, is there an ambulance driving very slowly behind you when you join a new company? Do they know that they're about to go bust or that something awful is going to happen to them? It's a bit like one of those silent movies where the guy walks in through a doorway and then the whole building sort of just falls on top of him, but he's left intact. So the old adage of uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Oh, my God, does that apply to what went through what I, what I went through? So, yeah, I got made redundant. And I know I, I know I shouldn't be glorifying it, but I do because it is everyone in a way should go through it because it does make you stronger. I got made redundant four times in five years. I think it was two of our three kids were tiny at the time. And so there's even more pressure on you. But my God, it does make you um, do things. And when finally, yeah, Glenn gave me my massive lucky break. And I'm always indebted to him for that. Setting up Cineflix International, now Cineflix Rights, from nothing, from three shows. Dogs with Jobs, which which still follows me around, you know, um, but very proud of that. And two other shows we had. And that's all we had. We had nothing. The revenue was, I think it was £40,000 annual. That was my target for Cineflix in year one. And suffice to say, we had double digit uh, or, or three digit increases for a good few years. We did. That was an amazing time, actually, those 10 years. So uh, Cineflix for 10 years. And then you decided to make the move into being entrepreneurial and doing your own thing. Yeah. And it was, um, again, you know, when you've got three kids and you're sort of thinking, this is a really stupid thing to do. But it was right. You know, Cineflix was a perfect 10 year, exactly almost to the day. And so it just felt right, even though it's terrifying as those people who have done that who've done this sort of the departure uh, will tell you it is terrifying but I had some really lucky bits of consultancy that got me going Argonon RTE so thanks to Dermot and uh, thanks to James Burstall to get me going with TCB it was um, I think I had a lot to prove and you know I, I can't help myself I'm from the Holloway Road and we tend to be quite chippy from around there I think um, you had something to prove to yourself or to other people to other people generally there's nothing that gets you out of bed quicker is there I mean it just does and and so um yeah I think it was probably yeah without a doubt it was to other people let's face it going on to TCB those brilliant eight years fantastic building up a team from scratch selling a business after five years with no debt and no overdraft I mean you couldn't do that now even that was 2017 because most content has a deficit so we somehow did it. I hired really, really well. But I think TCB had to shed its bark lots and lots of times because it was like a tree that grew too fast. You had to keep renewing and reviewing what you were doing with your team and with your policy. So those eight years were, yeah, obviously it finished in an absolute heap. <laughs> but if you forget about that, my God, it was a really proud thing to have done. The last uh, six to nine months of it, were tricky but I look at that final time you think actually without that without the the trauma that happened all right it would have been a lot easier without it but going through that has sort of led me to this and so having gone through that process you decided you were going to re-emerge like a phoenix from the flames uh, to create bossanova 
And are you finding that those lessons that you learned in those previous roles and uh, the TCB time and that sort of stuff is already starting to bear fruit in how you're you're running Bossanova? Yeah, you do. You learn. Um, yeah, you do. Um, you learn from everything, actually. Yeah, with Bossanova, I just I feel like I've been given a massive opportunity and uh, a massive chance to do it again. But I don't care if people say this is TCB Mark II. TCB Mark One was pretty good. If this is TCB Mark II, then fine, but it isn't. So when we spoke a few months ago, you were saying loving the independence, loving just being able to do things how we want. And then I suppose the following words give me some kind of indication of the direction that you went in. Loaded like a freight train, flying like an aeroplane, feeling like a space brain one more time tonight. I'm on the night train, as Guns N' Roses sort of famously sang. Here you are now in business with another investor. And so I suppose that's where the TCB Mark II uh, analogy comes in, because it seemed like a little bit of a change of plan in a way. Or you were just being coy. I was being coy. Oh, 100% being coy. Um, sorry, Danny. There's no way you can do this without an investor now. You can't, you can't do independent, unscripted distrib- distribution or even scripted, obviously. Um, you, have to get a, you have to get an investor. If it wasn't for COVID, the deal would have happened a lot earlier. But it just took a long time. We only met once in, across the whole period. You know, only actually signed in August. Both Night Train and Boston Over were named after songs. So therefore, you know, that's no bad thing for starters. I just found it really refreshing when we met. Um, and there were just so many very un-Anglo-Saxon business strategies that I felt that, uh, that Herbert and Philip um, from Seraphin had. So I bought into them straight away. I liked their focus on content and their very pragmatic view of building a company. You know, it wasn't about build it up quickly, flog it. This was, no, we're going to build something and we're going to enjoy it. And let's see how we go. Obviously, we'll make it profitable. And that's how we're going to gear it. But we're going to make you enjoy it as well. We're going to build in some incentives that is designed you to enjoy this. And so we we just came up with a perfect deal, really. Um, so you can't do unscripted distribution without some sort of proper cash flow. And, you know, without a catalogue of big catalogue. And, you know, the CJZ Greenstone catalogue, when that came along, that has been a massive game changer for the business. But the, the night train um, rolling cash facility that we've brought in now, it just makes you make decisions in a calmer way when you know that that facility is there. I'm going to try and not make mistakes, but you will. And maybe at the beginning, we'll be, we'll be making smaller bets across what content we bring in. Small, medium and high gambles here and there. But it's sure as much as this, this whole business is a science, it's also a gut feel. So it's 50-50. And I've got people around me now that will help put the science into it. And I probably put the gut feel into whatever our choices are. You know, that's the way I think it works. So with, with Night Train, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm only excited about it. And they, um, the projects that they're investing in on the scripted side are really, really interesting. And on the unscripted side as well. So, you know, it's early days in terms of um, how we're going to work together. But we're looking forward to, you know, as much cross-pollination of talent across the two teams as we can. Of all the series that you've worked on, 
which is the one that you were most proud of selling? I suppose it was, <clears throat> this shows you how long ago it was. It was uh, Nat Geo and it was air crash investigation. And I literally turned up with a VHS. That's, um, yeah, look at that. Old alert, old alert, old person talking about old ways of delivery. Yeah, I turned up with a VHS to the Nat Geo offices in Isleworth when they were then and said, you have to look at this. And this had just been made for Canada, French Canada, I think. And it was, uh, we still weren't completely funded, but we needed a, an international partner and we had a rough cut. And that was episode one, season one of Air Crash. So yeah, whether good or bad, you know, Air Crash Investigation, very proud of that. And I think with the next incarnation it has to be abandoned engineering without a shadow of a doubt, um, along with border security, of course, uh, from Channel 7. As Tim Warner calls it, border security, a broadcasting phenomenon. Sorry, that's a terrible uh, Tim Warner impression, but it doesn't really work on a podcast. Abandoned engineering has just got a lovely story. Broadcast a brief, um, leads to chat with a producer in the queue for a sandwich, I seem to remember. Then between the two businesses, we've, we um, come up with the right editorial. And I think, um, I think beyond a, now on about season eight of that, and it's only been going about five years, 70 plus episodes, Big, big, big money spinner. It'd be nice to have a squadron of those in your slate. What, what about the, either the one that got away or that you wish you had that you never had the chance to sell? Oh, yeah, so many that I wish I had. Yeah, that is a good question. Yeah, I mean, Christ almighty, you just want top gear, don't you, every day of the week? Everyone wants that. Every channel wants that. There's so many. You know what? Every week, every week I'll say, damn it, I really wanted that show. And then there's always another piece of content. So, um I always look enviously at other distributors that have a series in an area that I think, yeah, I'd love to have that, you know, uh, but eventually I get over it and you move on. I've never had a proper breakout hit at a distributor. Surely my time's got to come now. Surely it has. The world of what one that got away or the one that you got is because you're in the bear pits, you know, as I keep calling it. And it is a horrible place to be, to be scrapping around for content. And taking risks on on money on an investment, but that is um, that's what you buy into. If you're going to have an unscripted distributor, you've got to be prepared to wrestle away down in the bear pit, and it's not a very nice place to be. But if you don't want to do it, uh, then your business won't succeed. And I know succeed is no that that's qualified, isn't it? What do you class to succeed? Well, not just surviving. Put it that way, not just surviving. Having something that you can actually say, right, that's going to carry on going. So we're chatting uh, at the end of September and MIPCOM 2021 is uh, around the corner. Some people are going, some people aren't, uh, who may have been in the past. But there's no doubt that there's something great about being in that environment. Loads of people, lots of energy. What was the, the most memorable market for you out of all of the ones that you've been to over the years? Memorable, I suppose. Yeah, my <clears throat> my first one, because... I was just so ex- overexcited and I don't think I got a lot of sleep, but it didn't really matter. I had little kids at the time. I could have had three hours sleep, still felt better than being at home because you could get up when you wanted to and stay out. So we've all had those experiences. In the very early days of Cineflix, the very first stand was opposite an extreme porn stand. I don't know how extreme it was. I just know it was that extreme. The screens were turned away from the outside 
And there was a lots of guys who were perspiring in maybe ill-fitting suits that were peering into a screen and they were perspiring a little bit more. And it was comedic and it put me off an awful lot of pitches, I have to say. I had to change my angle of where I was sitting. And then that one, and this is all down to Lord Mip, you know, lovely Peter Rose, as I call him. Well, I call him Peter Rose, but I also christened him Lord Mip, which he loves. But he, uh, he also put us opposite another porn stand in the bunker. And for those of you that were ever in the bunker, um, here we go again, in the good old days, but in the bunker, the air was recycled. So you could sometimes smell food that someone had been eaten maybe three days earlier that come out. And then you'd come back and you'd have some sort of weird cough that would last about six months. You think, why hasn't that got away? Well, you know, you can tell why, because you were down in that place for hours on so anyway um yeah peter put us opposite another stand that not only was it porn this time it was facing the screen was out there facing us much to the merriment of all the buyers that turned up and saw what i had to look at and we couldn't change the way i was facing but the the porn star was also running the stand and she was facing outwards so she couldn't see the screen behind her but she was chewing gum with very very large lips possibly not natural and she was chewing gum, looking really bored with her sort of her chin resting on her um, hand. And meanwhile, behind her on the screen, all sorts was going on with her with no clothes on. And uh, some of it took me by surprise. Um, you know, I went to a Catholic school, um, which sometimes is a bad thing. Uh, but anyway, I went to a Catholic school and that was a surprise. Uh, but I think um, uh, one of the highlights was William Shatner, actually. He came to Cannes. All right, he goes to Cam with lots of people, but actually meeting him, you know, call me Bill, William Shatner, introducing him to like 300 people that when we had the party for weird or what, that was fantastic. And then the dinner when he was around the table, this was uh, this was about 10, 11, 12 years ago. He could talk and he, he still can. He can talk and he can talk. Him and I were the only two left that weren't either face down in our foods or asleep or had already gone. He was nothing but charming. Uh, and I think that was good. The other one, John Hanna, was on another stand. And someone actually said, why is Paul Heaney on that other stand? And, that, and that's happened once before, whereas poor John Hanna, for God's sake, someone went up to him in a shopping in a shopping mall and gave him a hug and said, hi, Paul, which is just totally embarrassing for him. That was there, the memorable moments, I'd say. And um now that um, Brad Lyons, um, rest in peace, Channel 7 is no longer around, I don't have to do those monkey impressions, which I had to do twice um, every year, which was part of the Channel 7 party. But thank God, thank God those days have gone. If you had to give a talk to a group of aspiring distribution executives about succeeding in the business, what would be the one tip that you would give them based on all of these uh, wide experiences that you've had? Uh, yeah, good question. I think it's an old colleague of mine in airtime sales had a sign up on his wall that said, success is one-tenth talent, nine-tenths persistence. And it is persistence. You know, persistence just to the point of annoyance. And you've got to be able to judge. You've got to be perceptive enough to know when it goes from persistence to annoyance. It's not that easy to tell. And if you don't get, if you're not persistent enough, then you're not, you're not going to make it work. Uh, if you can just push it and use your personality to push it, then you'll be, then you'll be all right. And I would persevere with, if you feel that you are selling a slate that isn't that amazing, that, and, and I have experience of doing that, 
it's only good experience to do that because when you finally do get to selling to sell good content, you'll use those skills. You don't want to be a smooth talking order taker, which you know, arguably you could say if you're in one of the bigger companies, that's what you will be doing. So this is the point in the podcast where I ask my guest for their lockdown film book, music choice, and box set, and choosing one of each. So what would you choose to get through a lockdown should we suffer one of those in the future? White Lotus, my God, that's the best thing I've watched since Succession. I think that's fair to say. And then with book, I've just just finished the Bernie Gunter books, which I'm really sad about finishing. Dermot Horan at RTE put me onto them. The fictional detective based in... 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, Germany. Um, I know I'm a bit of a World War II bore sometimes, but it's fantastic. And I've finished those and that has been incredible. A film? I have to say it's Get Carter. Um, Michael Caine's one of his finest films and maybe and the, one of the best soundtracks of all time as well. And so evocative of its time. I would say, yeah, that is worth dipping into. And there's so much to watch in that film, so much to take in. And it's got, um, it's got a view of its time. I think that's why we sometimes love watching these films because they, they present a snapshot of time that you just can't get back. And finally, music. I like to stick to my, um, my favourites. So though, though I've named two companies now after Elvis, my, my actual favourite band group is Rocks Music, is Brian Ferry. And so I would always, uh, along, with, along with the boys from Dusseldorf, Craftwork, which I'm never too far away from. And that was possibly the best concert of all time at the Tate Modern. We were surrounded by what looked like geography teachers in very strange framed glasses, um, watching four middle-aged or even late middle-aged Germans checking their emails. But my God, what a great concert that was. The B-52s, Rocks and Music, Brian Ferry, David Bowie, gets me out of any sort of hole. And we've all had those over the last year and a half. Uh, but along with... Um, the King, that lot gets me out. But I do, listen, I am up to date. I listen to Six Music, so that gets me up to date. And so I like to pretend I'll smatter that, I'll sort of, uh, you know, scatter that with songs from the last five years. But yeah, they're the ones that I rely on to sort of get me out of anything yet. And when you're in a sort of, when you've got a, the, the, the black dog hanging over you, that always helps. And um, I think we should always have that. Well, Paul He, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the podcast. To take the Get Carter theme to a little bit of its uh, natural extension, you're a big man, but it looks like you're in good shape. <laughs> yeah. We do this for a living, don't we? Yeah, that's really good, Danny. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, to blather on. I really appreciate it for asking me. You've had some big people on recently, and the last, you know, the ones with Jay and Jeff were fantastic. So um, I won't be up to that standard, but I really appreciate it.